Paul Osborne here. Thank you, as ever, for downloading the latest podcast with you as campaigning resumes ahead of the general election at the end of what has been, frankly, a sodding awful week. All acts of terrorism are cowardly attacks on innocent people. But this attack stands out for its appalling, sickening cowardice, deliberately targeting innocent, defenceless children and young people who should have been enjoying one of the most memorable nights of their lives. Our hearts are broken, but our resolve has never been stronger. We are determined that terrorism will not divide our communities as its perpetrators clearly intend. And we're determined that the poison of terror will not be allowed to pollute our democratic politics. Just hours after the devastation of that terrorist outrage, people stood together in that community, in that big Albert Square, jam-packed with people. And for all of us, it feels beyond devastating, beyond heartbreaking. We will remember every single one of them. They will be never forgotten. But the terrorist, Will, he died in vain. He died to divide us. He died to set us against one another. And what did I see in Manchester? People putting their arms around one another. Often a single event can symbolise a general election. Edward Heath saying who governs Britain in the 1970s or the War of Jennifer's Ear in the 90s or John Prescott punching a voter in 2001. And it seems right now like the 2017 election will forever be tied up with what's happened this week in Manchester. In the immediate aftermath, all the parties cancelled their campaign events. And for a while, it was kind of hard to see how or when they would resume. When you are in a world where lunatics will cheerfully murder children at a pop concert, who can justifiably get excited about another campaign poster? But the mundane and sometimes ridiculous world of political argument is part of living in a democracy. And it is that democracy that seems to so enrage this tiny minority of homicidal idiots. Returning to handing out leaflets and knocking on people's doors is frankly not going to make anybody feel any better at the moment. But it will probably really irritate the kind of people who see democracy as something to destroy. Robert Meekin is with me to talk through the campaign, which we will do in just a moment. But but first of all, Robert, I mean, I grew up about 30 miles from Manchester and it was this incredibly exciting, trendy place down the road. You've spent a lot of your life living and working there. Oh, indeed. Yeah, a long time. And I, you know, working for the Manchester News newspaper, living there, I've lived there since as well, on and off. It's uh, without doubt a wonderful place to live, wonderful place to work. And so it was obviously... <laughs> Very, very emotional experience seeing events unfold there this week and the response of Mancunians and how the, the wonderful response that it was hasn't surprised me at all. You know, full of uh, the usual stoicism, full of sort of the love and the humour that comes out as well at the same time. All those things that you know, I associate Manchester with and it's uh, it's been a surreal and upsetting time, but I think Manchester has come out of it looking very, very strong. The notion of somebody who lived in Manchester, who was born in Britain, who then walked into an arena full of children at the time that their parents are waiting to collect them with the intention of killing as many as possible. And you can't try to understand that because it, it defies understanding. It's the uncomfortable reality of these situations, isn't it? It's uh, that it's people born and bred here, just a local lad who we, we gathered, supported the local football team and all the rest of it, went to a local university, was capable of doing that. It, it really is hard for people to comprehend. Unfortunately, 
with the sort of terrorism we're dealing with, that that's that's a likely scenario now. I mean, in a way, it's a cliche. It's the cliched response to terrorism. You say, I'm not going to let this change me. But you can see there is a sort of fierce determination from the people that you hear from in and around Manchester to not let this change them. Having lived there on and off, you certainly the Mancunian people are are tough. There's no question. They certainly are tough. They are certainly no nonsense. They're also extremely romantic. And I think you've seen all those characteristics come out in a very admirable way over the last few days when they've stood up to this and said, right, you know, you can try all your light. You're not you're not going to change us. This is, of course, the kind of stuff that crosses the desks of Prime Ministers and Home Secretaries all the time. We occasionally hear these sort of opaque references to all the attacks that have foiled and thwarted, and uh, that doesn't provide any comfort in a week like this. But but this week, Theresa May and especially Amber Rudd have had to very suddenly switch back from being political candidates fighting an election campaign to being members of a serving government dealing with a crisis. Very peculiar, that seeing that sudden switch from everyone in their rather more cynical uh, party badge-wearing mode turning immediately suddenly back into having to be just responsible national leaders. You'd have to say that the the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary, along with Andy Byrne, Mayor of Manchester, I think have all behaved impeccably at this time. I think that you you, you can't really fault them. It's an an enviable position to be in as politicians. I don't think any of us would would, would want to be in that sort of position at this time. The sort of decisions they have to make, uh, heaven only knows what they're going through behind the scenes. But I, I, you know, it's easy to be cynical about our elected representatives, whatever party colour they happen to be. But I think the last few days, I think you, I think you've seen people behave in a in a very admirable way. Clearly, there was no appetite to go straight back into campaigning. But equally, a longer pause than the sort of three days that we've had does carry its own risks. You can't put democracy on hold. You can't delay a general election. And if all those words of defiance, of carrying on that we've heard coming out of Manchester are to mean anything, then actually that robust, sometimes even bitter political argument, that's what a democracy is all about. It's the kind of thing that the people who do things like this hate. Yeah, it's going to be, of course, it's going to feel strange at first hearing the political parties engage in battle again, so to speak. But as you say, it's necessary. It might not be comfortable to our ears at first. It will jar a little bit, I think, but it has to happen. We've got a general election on on, on June the 8th, so it's getting ever closer. And I think, I, I, I think it, it would be wrong for us to, uh, to to hold back, to postpone that any longer, to get back into into a proper debate is is the healthy and right thing to do as you say i mean this this country is a democracy the people who are attacking us don't want us to be a democracy so there's a logical answer to that we keep moving on one thing that has changed of course is the presence of hundreds of soldiers on the streets particularly in london now it's a temporary measure because of the raising of the threat level but You know, how temporary is this going to be? Are we going to go into polling day, which is less than two weeks away now, with the military deployed in London? Are we going to have armed police hanging around near polling stations? That would be 
quite a worrying signal to send out, wouldn't it? Now that they're out there, it's a difficult call to make when you, you pull them off the streets, I'd have thought, particularly at this heightened time when it is a general election, where there are lots of high-profile political figures appearing across the country, appearing in cities. Difficult call to make that, to suddenly say, right, we've put the soldiers on the streets, now we're going to remove them. And I know it's it, it, it does uh, divide opinion. Um, I think I think it was probably the most sensible thing to do and logical thing to do. Well, as we said, uh, democracy is the thing that most irritates the kind of people who would carry out an attack like this. And uh, as the campaign is uh, now back on track, let's get on with it. Because before the campaign was halted, it had looked like Theresa May was in a bit of trouble, actually. We talked in last week's programme about the Conservative Manifesto pledge on social care, which included making people pay for care in their own home from the value of that home, which suggested that a lot more people would see those homes eventually go back to the banks rather than passing the value on to their children when they die. Now, on Monday, Theresa May tried to calm what was a growing row but she did it with what appeared to be a staggering U-turn. This manifesto says that we will come forward with a consultation paper, a government green paper. And that consultation will include an absolute limit on the amount people have to pay for their care costs. Robert, to believe the idea that this isn't a U-turn, you have to accept that the Tories had always planned to put a cap on the total care costs and just forgot to put it in the manifesto and it would be fine if Jeremy Hunt hadn't explicitly said that the party was abandoning the idea of the cap. So what's happened here is the Tories were so spooked by the bad reaction the plan got and perhaps felt a little bit overconfident about just how much they could get away with in this election and how much they could take the loyalty of the pensioner vote for granted. Yes, it's uh, it's obviously nonsense to suggest that there was always this magical cap. They just didn't uh, happen to put in the manifesto. Yeah, obviously, that can't be considered to have any credibility at all. Uh, and the Tories have been caught out in that regard. They they obviously had a very good start to the election campaign. Obviously, got a little jittery that this this issue was backfiring, and so they've now tried to hedge their bets with it. I think looking at the sort of the bigger picture. The, the reality is that this is going to be a huge, huge issue for this country in the next decade plus. Yes, the Tories have been caught out. It was, it was a rather cynical political strategy at this point. I think if we look to the longer term, this issue will have to be, have to be addressed. Somehow we're going to have to work out a way to pay for it. So I'm actually not opposed, I have to say, to the idea of us... You know, the population having to pay for for their care. I suppose the problem is that it's the Conservative Party who, for decades, have promoted property ownership as the thing to aspire to. Work hard, pay your mortgage, own your own home, own an asset that is wealth that will appreciate in value that you can hand on to your children. I think it was Margaret Thatcher who came up with that idea of you know wealth cascading down the generations, and it feels a bit like that bargain has just been torn up very quickly by, you're quite right, in a government that's that's flailing around thinking, how the hell do you pay this never-ending, constantly expanding bill for providing social care when 
people are sitting on assets worth six figure seven figure sums it's the obvious thing to do but the problem is you've spent decades telling people that if they work hard and they pay their mortgage they will have this huge asset to hand on to their children and then you suddenly say to them actually no we're going to take it back yes what a very sorry conclusion that would be to the tory relationship with the baby boom generation essentially i mean it was it was that generation that got rich in the 1980s under margaret thatcher they're the richest generation they're the generation of course who are property owners across britain certainly on average a hell of a lot wealthier than a lot of their their children and if then at the to later in their lives it comes back with the, the same tory government saying well actually i'm afraid that as you say that that deal we made with you all those years ago insisting you should be a property owner you leave this all to your family if that turns out to be a fallacy well you could hardly blame them for being exceptionally bitter about it if you want to know just how big a cock up this was by the way the manifesto was published at just the same time as the postal votes were being sent out and who makes up the biggest demographic of postal voters yes pensioners the gamble still is that older voters have nowhere to go but the risk of course is they might decide to sit on their hands and not vote for anyone meanwhile the conservatives have been busy on google buying adverts that will pop up when you search for the phrase dementia tax thus of course legitimizing the copious use of the phrase dementia tax There'll be probably someone in Tory HQ had this bright idea. Let, let's just let's intercept this problem at, at its root. And in fact, now all you, now the words Tory and dementia tax are sort of linked like never before. Anyway, it's just it's worsened the problem. Now, it is one of the standard rules of British election campaigns that support for the Labour Party falls in the weeks before polling day, even in the elections that Labour wins pretty much all the time. The party's poll rating drops in the weeks before the vote, but not this time. Remember those 20 plus point Tory leads from a few weeks ago? Now the polls have that lead down to between 11 and 12 points. Now, look, that is still pretty impressive and it's still enough to guarantee a decent majority. But wasn't Jeremy Corbyn supposed to be unelectable? Wasn't he supposed to be dragging Labour to its worst election performance since the Second World War? Right now, Robert, Labour under Jeremy Corbyn in the opinion polls is outperforming Ed Miliband's general election result from two years ago when Labour got 30%. Now it's 34%. Is this Jeremy Corbyn's campaigning magnetism? Or is it that people are more comfortable voting against a Tory landslide because they're also pretty confident that there's no way he's going to end up in Downing Street? I think Corbyn himself is having a pretty good election. I think he enjoys being out on the stump. He enjoys just being, you know, campaigning, admittedly mainly around his own supporters, but he, he enjoys that a lot more than being in the confines of Westminster. I'd also say that this is a long general election campaign and it's it, it's pretty rare that you don't suddenly have a, a, a twist in the middle that, you know, particularly when a, I think when a party is far, far ahead, I think it was always likely at some point people would say, oh, no, no, it's that lead isn't quite as big as we first imagined. There are always going to be twists and turns in this. Are people lying to pollsters as well? Let's be honest about it. But I mean, that's, that's certainly plenty of evidence to suggest that in the past. Uh, the, the, the shy Tory voter we heard about a lot after the 2015 result. You know, are, are there more people? actually planning to vote Tory than, than admit it presently to the pollsters. I think we have to bear these sorts of things in mind. It's interesting that the same 
forecasts that have Labour's poll rating going up and the gap with the Conservatives narrowing still predict that Labour will finish up below 190 seats, so losing 40-plus seats. Now, the assumption you make looking at that is that if he's winning more votes, what he's doing is winning back Labour supporters in seats that they were already going to win. So, in other words, he's mobilised people on the left wing of Labour support who maybe didn't vote for the party under leaders like Blair and Brown who are coming back. But to be honest, they'd already won those seats. And so those votes don't help them at all. But what they're not doing is winning over floating voters in the marginal seats that they need to win. But in terms of his survival as leader. I mean, at the beginning of this campaign, I think we all assumed Labour are going to have a shocking election and then immediately afterwards, something's going to happen that's going to force Jeremy Corbyn to resign. But if he gets 34%, which is four points more than Ed Miliband managed, if he gets more than the 9.3 million votes that Labour managed under Ed Miliband two years ago, you have to assume that he's not going anywhere. Oh, my goodness. I think, yes, if he turned in that sort of result... I, I wouldn't expect it to be going anywhere at all. I think he could argue that it's been a very difficult couple of years for him. You know, he, he won this supposedly shock victory in, in 2015. His own party, in terms of his parliamentary party, plotted to be rid of him. He had to go through another leadership election. He will say that, my goodness, look at the hostility that I faced across the mainstream media. And if he does come out with that sort of respectable result, he could quite... You know, honestly say with some credibility that, look, I've taken the party in a far bolder direction than Ed Miliband or Gordon Brown did before me. And if I'm getting close to the, their sort of vote, only having tried this for the last sort of 18 months to two years, you know, I, I feel I can take us forward from here. And it would be hard. I mean, there'd be a lot of Labour MPs would still want to be rid of him. It would be hard to uproot him, though. So the campaign's resumed with around two weeks to go, but it's a bank holiday weekend. The sun is shining and let's be honest, none of us will be paying that much attention to the election for the next couple of days. So actually, the parties have around about 10 days left to win you round. So let's try and work out how the campaign's final phase is going to go. Presumably, the Tories will just want to keep talking up what they claim are the threats posed by Jeremy Corbyn. They'll have to tread carefully, though, particularly on issues around security, because it wouldn't take much for someone to accuse them of trying to politicise the events of the last week. Yeah, that's really tricky. And some idiot is bound to, well, more than one idiot is bound to do that. I mean, I've already seen... um on the flip side of that, people suggesting Theresa May has the army on the streets for political purposes. That sort of hysterical nonsense you get on social media. And there's going to be there's bound to be on the other side of that people you know, suggesting that, you know, we, you can't risk Corbyn at a time like this, at a time where there are, there are terrorists on our shores. Uh, Labour, uh, I assume, will be desperate to revive those arguments about social care funding. They'll feel that they were gaining a bit of momentum on that before the campaign was paused. It is the only thing that's really damaged the Tories so far. Interesting to see where Jeremy Corbyn pops up because Theresa May keeps turning up in Labour heartland constituencies in the North and the Midlands, the seats that she wants to take off Labour. Jeremy Corbyn keeps popping up in what ought to really be safe Labour seats, just trying to shore up the seats they've already got. I have barely seen a single Labour election campaign leaflet that's mentioned his name. They're sort of 
they're, they're, they're trying to drift back into Parliament without saying Jeremy Corbyn's name as if he was some sort of jam-making Voldemort or something. Tim Farron, meanwhile, you've got to feel sorry for the Liberal Democrats who just can't get any traction in this campaign. I mean, we really did think they were going to make progress in the Remain voting areas, but increasingly it feels a little bit like that's yesterday's battle now. Yeah, and they've pitched their tent, haven't they, on that issue? They've, they've made it clear that that's their policy, re-second referendum. And it just suddenly looks, you know, so yesterday, as you say. Um, so, no, it's never really taken off that campaign. They're, they're rather floundering. I mean, Farron, as, as we've said before, is, a, you know, an amiable, hardworking politician. Do people see him as a sort of authoritative, you know, leadership sort of material? No, I don't think they do. But they were understandably hoping to... Um, make steady progress, I think, at this election in terms of the number of seats they had. And right now, I, it, it's hard to imagine uh, that happening. Well, UKIP uh, got in first with the resumption of the campaigns, launching their manifesto for the shrinking group of people who still actually care, clearly feeling that he has nothing to lose. Paul Nuttall is claiming the credit for standing up to terrorism by being the first party leader to resume campaigning. It is not good enough to light candles and proclaim that extremists will not beat us. Action is required on multiple fronts. And I am proud UKIP is setting out its patriotic agenda. The launch did include a suggestion that Theresa May bears some responsibility for the week's events in Manchester because of past issues around immigration policy. And that obviously veers, as we mentioned a little earlier, dangerously close to politicising the events of this week. It is, uh, on a lighter note, however, good to see that some UKIP candidates are as enjoyably interesting as they ever were, proposing sensible policies for a happier Britain. I have in my hand the election campaign leaflet of one candidate in Suffolk, which includes the following pledge. Robert, I think you're going to enjoy this. Under the heading, The Starry Firmament. Yeah. Let the UK, he says, invest £1.2 billion in four ventures with the ultimate aim of financing government without needing to raise tax at all. And then you can't criticise this because it's, it's fully costed. The first is £40 million for an interstellar nanoprobe fleet design. Uh -huh. I don't know what that is. No, sounds good. It's Captain Kirk or something. <laughs> the second is £60 million. It's a bit more expensive for an interstellar light communication right then a hundred million pounds for an interstellar colony ship design and then this is the big one yeah. a billion pounds for the first company who can by 2026 profitably mine the asteroid belt or the moons of saturn or jupiter for platinum and water. Well, I'm relieved, I'm relieved someone has, has thought of that because I think the others have missed out on that one. UKIP are the first political party to have fully costed proposals mm. for stealing the mineral resources of other planets. Yeah, I could make a crass joke about space cadets now, but I know that would be low. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that you should take this as a sign that, that UKIP have not necessarily rigorously vetted the candidates who are standing in no, this election. No, It's not a well-oiled machine, the UKIP operation presently, I think it'd be fair to say. It's uh, all, all manner of eccentric characters. I think the gentleman from Suffolk might be 
pretty much at the top of that list presently. I'm just glad there's someone who's thinking these things through. I just imagine if we're, uh, if we're, yeah, how we laugh now, but I hope to God in a decade's time we're not sent there and be exiled somewhere on Jupiter mining. That's what's coming to my head now. We're exactly the kind of people that would be, be first on that ship, wouldn't we? Oh, natural la- natural labourers, yes. The interstellar colony ship that's going to cost yeah, yeah, £100 million, yeah. pounds, apparently. <laughs> that is it for this week. Let's draw a veil over seven days that I imagine most of us will be pretty glad to see the back of, frankly. Um, next time, we will prepare for the home stream on an election campaign that few people wanted but most can't wait to see over. Uh, In the meantime, do get in touch on Twitter at Paul Osborne. Thanks to Robert. Thanks to you for listening. And for the moment, goodbye. Goodbye.